following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. Man, let's take our Bibles and now this morning we'll turn to Psalm chapter 18. Psalm chapter 18. Somebody asked me this morning if I felt older today. Um, not really. Psychologically, uh, it kind of hits you, but uh, thank you for all the birthday wishes, the cards, the, uh, there was a, also some kind of a, a surprise party and then little gifts that people have given me and uh, uh, emails and notes. Thank you very much for, for that. appreciate the love and, and uh, please uh, grieve with me over the fact that I've turned 60 years old now and uh, nah, 60 is a new 40, right? Okay, good. All right, Psalm 18 and our text will be verses 20 to 27. Twenty to twenty-seven. The Lord revealed, rewarded, excuse me, rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He has recompensed me, for I have kept the ways of the Lord, and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his judgments were before me, and I did not put away his statutes from me. I was also blameless before him, and I kept myself from my iniquity. Therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. With the merciful you will show yourself merciful. With a blameless man, you will show yourself blameless. With a pure, you will show yourself pure. And with the devious, you will show yourself shrewd. For you will save the humble people, but will bring down haughty looks. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we come before you this morning, we are so thankful for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that has been spoken and read even in our worship services today already. We also thank you for your holy word. And Lord, we know that the flesh profits nothing. It's the spirit who profits in all things. And so we pray that your spirit would come and enliven our hearts and our minds to understand your word, not just intellectually, but to know and experience the power of the truth effectually working in our hearts. We look up to you, our Father. We are dependent upon you and upon your spirit as preachers, as preacher and as hearers. And so help us, draw near to us, grant us the help of your spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, John Knox, many of you probably heard of him, the great Scottish reformer uh, during the Protestant Reformation. He had a very, very, interesting life. It was full of trials and hardships, but also it was full of amazing usefulness for the cause of Christ and the Reformation, particularly in Scotland, though also in England and on the continent in Frankfurt and Geneva uh, for a time. And it could be argued that under God, he almost single-handedly reformed the Church of Scotland amid 
amidst tremendous opposition. Uh, a more thorough reformation took root there in Scotland under his influence than in any other country at the time. And by God's grace, it was accomplished through Knox's bold and powerful preaching, his fiery pen, and his fervent prayers. An observer of his preaching said this, I assure you the voice of one man is able in one hour to put more life in us than 500 trumpets blustering in our ears. Uh, Mary, the Roman Catholic Queen of Scots, said she was, quote, more afraid of John Knox's prayers and faith than she was of an army of 10,000 men. Now, Knox was not a perfect man. He had his faults and his sins, his views on the relation of church and state, uh, lacked biblical balance. He may also have been a, a, a bit overly severe at times, perhaps lacking in tact, but he was a faithful man of God and he was God's man for that time. Here was his testimony to the officers of his church uh, that he gave on his deathbed. He said, I know that many have complained much and loudly and do still complain of my too great severity. But God knows that my mind was always free from hatred to the persons of those against whom I denounced the heavy judgments of God. In the meantime, I cannot deny but that I felt the greatest abhorrence of the sin in which they indulged. Still, however, keeping this one thing in view, that if it were possible, I might gain them to the Lord. But a certain reverential fear of my God who called me and was pleased of his grace to make me a steward of divine mysteries to whom I knew I must render an account when I shall appear before his tribunal of the manner in which I have discharged the embassy which he hath committed to me, this had such a powerful effect as to make me utter so intrepidly whatever the Lord put into my mouth without any respect of persons. Therefore, I profess before God and his holy angels that I never made gain of the sacred word of God that I have never studied to please men, never indulged my own private passions or those of others, but faithfully distributed the talent entrusted to my care for the edification of the church over which I did watch. This was his testimony on his deathbed. And Dave Merrick, after quoting this testimony in his lectures on church history, made the comment, would that every preacher of the gospel could testify the same at the end of his days. And I would add, would that every Christian, in the context of his or her own particular sphere of opportunity and responsibility, could give a similar testimony of faithfulness to God at life's end. But someone might ask the question, is it even proper to give such a testimony? To actually assert that you have faithfully lived a life of genuine devotion and service to the Savior. Is it even proper to make such a claim? Is there not a flavor of self-righteousness in such a claim? Is it even possible to make such a claim? Well, these are some of the questions raised, not only by the testimony of Knox and other Christians in history, but by our text this morning here in Psalm chapter 18. Uh, this psalm is a psalm of David, and, and in it he's looking back over the events of his life, and he's reflecting on how the Lord had blessed him and has been faithful to him in all of his distresses. It contains something of a retrospect, a review over the long story of God's faithfulness to David. It's a very long psalm. It's about 50 verses. Uh, the first major section is what we might call an expression 
of exuberant praise. And it runs from verse 1 to verse 19. And David is bursting with praise. And in verses 4 to 19, he gives reasons for his praise. The desperate situations from which he had been delivered, verses 4 to 6. The powerful interventions of God on his behalf, verses 7 to 15. And the wonderful relief and blessings he experienced, verses 16 to 19. But now in the section that I want to focus on and that I read to you this morning, we have what I'm calling David's testimony of conscious integrity his testimony of conscious integrity in verses 20 to 27 now the first section ends with these words in verse 19 he also brought me out into a broad place he delivered me because he delighted in me because he delighted in me and that last phrase that introduces this new section of the psalm david's testimony of conscious integrity in which we have first the claim that david makes verses 20 to 24 and then the way of god david knows verses 25 to 27 so consider with me first of all the claim david makes And here David sets forth one of the reasons God has so blessed him throughout his long life and delivered him from his enemies. Listen beginning in verse 20. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his judgments were before me and I did not put away his statutes from me. I was also blameless before him, and I kept myself from my iniquity. Therefore, for this reason, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. Now, this is a passage that might make some of us nervous. In the same way as uh, may be the case with the confident testimony that John Knox gave at the end of his life of his own integrity and as we read these words someone might ask doesn't this smack of self-righteousness this sounds like some kind of merit theology some kind of theology of works righteousness was David a self-righteous man who was blind to his own sinfulness how do we square these words for example with the teaching of scripture that there is none righteous no not one that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God How do we square them with what we ourselves know about David if you've ever read anything about David's life? That he was by no means a man who was free from sin, even from very grievous sin. How do we square these words with the doctrines of grace? It was salvation by grace alone. How do we square them with the doctrine of justification by faith alone on the basis of the righteousness of Christ alone and not on the basis of any righteousness that we ourselves possess? Well, these are questions a passage like this immediately raises. So what do we say to these things? Well, first of all, we have to say that these words are found in the Bible. The same Bible that teaches all have sinned and there is none righteous, no, not one. And the same Bible that teaches salvation by grace alone. Therefore, we're not to understand, this tells us, we're not to understand David's words in a way that contradicts those very important gospel truths that run throughout Scripture. Secondly, David is not the only child of God in the Bible who makes claims like this. 
and gives confident testimony to his own integrity. Let me give you a few examples. Consider Job. There are some very long passages in which he defends his integrity. I'll give you a a fairly short one, Job 23, 8 and following. He says, look, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I cannot perceive him. When he works on the left hand, I cannot behold him. When he turns to the right hand, I cannot see. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. My foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. That's a testimony of conscious integrity. Consider Nehemiah. You remember after rebuking the Jewish nobles for their self-seeking and for oppressing the remnant who had returned to Jerusalem from captivity, Nehemiah follows this with a lengthy protest before God of his own integrity. He says in Nehemiah 5.14 and following, Moreover, from the time that I was appointed their governor, neither I nor my brothers ate the governor's provisions. But the former governors laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. But I did not so because of the fear of God. Indeed, I also continued the work on this wall, and I did not buy any land. And at my table were 150 Jews and rulers besides those who came to us from the nations around us. And he goes on, he describes how he provided food and hospitality and how in all of his ways he never compromised his integrity by oppressing the people. And that section ends in verse 19 of chapter 5 with Nehemiah saying this, Remember me, my God, for good according to all that I have done for this people. And the, cha- the last chapter of Nehemiah ends in much the same way. It ends with a testimony of conscious integrity. Now I've mentioned a couple of examples from the Old Testament. Job and Nehemiah, is what, along with David here in our text. Moving over to the New Testament, consider the Apostle Paul. Paul, the great defender of salvation by grace and justification by faith alone. The same Paul who actually penned the words... All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The St. Paul who wrote, For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is, the good of, uh, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It was this St. Paul who could say before the Jewish council in Acts 23, 1, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. He could say in 2 Corinthians 1.12, For our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity. Now these are all examples of men making basically the same claim that David does in Psalm 18. These are testimonies of conscious integrity. So this is something that's common in Scripture. We find it in Scripture many times. And let me add that the Bible itself, not just the person's concern making such statements, but the Bible makes claims like this about certain people. An example that quickly comes to mind is when I was first preparing this is what, what is said about Zacharias and Elizabeth the parents of John the Baptist in Luke 1.16. There we read, and they were both righteous before God. And it's not talking there merely about imputed righteousness. It's talking about practical righteousness as the words that follow go on to exegete what is meant and to explain it. They were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. It's talking about their walk. 
So as we wrestle with how to understand and interpret a passage like the one before us, we need to keep these things in mind. First, these words are found in the Bible, the same Bible that teaches that all have sinned, and there is none righteous, no, not one, and the same Bible that teaches salvation by grace alone. Second, David is not the only child of God in the Bible who makes claims like this or about whom claims like this are made. We see this often in Scripture. And then thirdly, the David who wrote this passage is the same David who in other places confesses his sinfulness and mourns over his remaining corruption. Here in our text, he makes statements like this. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. I was also blameless before him, and I kept myself from my iniquity. Therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness. But now, even if we leave out Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, where we have his confession of sin with reference to Bathsheba and Uriah, quite apart from that situation and those confessions of sin, David was constantly confessing sin and confessing his need of God's mercy. This is the same David who writes in Psalm 25, 11, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. The same David who writes in Psalm 38, 17 and following, For I am ready to fall, and my sorrow is continually before me, for I will be in anguish over my sin. The same David who writes in Psalm 40, verse 12, My iniquities have overtaken me so that I am not able to look up. They are more than the hairs of my head. Therefore my heart fails. In another place he writes, For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. Sounds like a man who is painfully aware of remaining sin, doesn't it? A man who felt the remains of inward corruption, a man who mourned over it and grieved over his remaining sin and who confessed his sins and who walked in repentance before God. A man who knew and deeply felt his constant need of God's forgiving mercy. So whatever you think about the passage before us, David is not a man who thought of himself as sinless. And he's not a man who rested and trusted in his own righteousness for forgiveness of sin and justification and eternal life. Again, this is the same David who wrote, Do not remember the sins of my youth, nor my transgression according to your mercy. Remember me. And who wrote in Psalm 65, 3, Iniquities prevail against me. As for our transgressions, you will provide atonement for them. That's what he was resting in. For pardon and acceptance with God and salvation and justification. Not in his own righteousness, but in God's mercy. By means of a divinely provided atonement. Indeed, when defending the very doctrine of justification by faith, alone, in Christ alone, the Apostle Paul quotes David from, in Romans 4, 6 and following. He writes, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Then he quotes from Psalm 32, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute sin. Quoting from David. And yet, we have this passage. We do have this passage. 
And in it, David is giving his confident testimony of conscious integrity. And he's setting forth here his righteousness as one of the reasons God has delivered him from his enemies and prospered his way. So in light of what we've just seen then, how do we interpret this passage? And other passages like it in which we see God's people, believers, making the kind of claim David does here. Or we see such claims being made about them. Well, we need to understand that David is not claiming sinless perfection. But he is testifying to the fact that he has remained faithful to his covenant relationship with God. Throughout all the ups and downs of his life, through it all, he never apostatized. He never turned away from God. He kept the ways of the Lord. Not perfectly, but this was the sincere desire and endeavor and pattern of his life. He's not speaking of sinless perfection here, but of overall life direction. Verse 23 is helpful here. He says, I was also blameless before him. The word translated blameless is a Hebrew word that does not connote sinlessness, but wholeness. It literally means complete, whole, entire. As Davis comments in his commentary, David does not claim perfection in life's particulars, but wholeheartedness in life's commitments. And then notice the last part of the verse. I kept myself, he says, not just from iniquity, but I kept myself from my iniquity. He knew his sinful nature, his remaining corruption. He knew what his peculiar tendencies were. And he could testify that he had kept himself by God's grace from being given over and enslaved to the constant pull of his remaining corruption and sin, his own tendencies and temptations. Though he was not sinless, and at times he fell prey to sin, and at least on one occasion, as we know, very grievous sin, this was not the consistent pattern of his life. Even in his darkest hours, he never apostatized. He never gave up in the battle against sin. He never forsook God, fully or finally. Even in his lowest moments, he was quick to be broken for his sins and to repent of them. He had persevered in faith and repentance and in a life of pursuing holiness and God's glory until the end. And though not flawless, he had remained faithful to the charge God had committed to him as the shepherd of his people. David had not done the will of God perfectly, but he had done the will of God purposefully and perseveringly. Let me borrow an illustration. Some of you will remember this. I've used this illustration before. It's just the years, the number of years gets longer. I've been married to my wife now 33 years. 33 years. And I purposed the day that I said in the presence of God before witnesses, in that covenant commitment to my wife, we entered into that covenant relationship called marriage, and I promised before, purposed and promised before witnesses that I take this woman to be my God-given wife, to love, to honor, to cherish in sickness or in health, Till death do us part. I purpose from that day to be everything that my vows said. And that basic purpose and the pursuit of that hasn't changed from the day when we were married. There has been and still is a purposeful, 
cleaving to a purposeful devotion to that woman who is my wife. But my wife can tell you that I've not perfectly expressed that purpose every moment of every day of every year of our marriage. Many times I've had to ask her forgiveness for sinning against her by selfishness or unkind words or irritableness. But you see, rather than those confessions of failure and my grief over those things negating the reality and the genuineness of my purpose of heart, they're added evidence of the sincerity of that purpose. It's the very sincerity of my purpose, the heart reality of my love for her, my desire to love her as Christ loved the church that makes me grieve when I don't love her as Christ loves the church. You see, that's the kind of blamelessness, the kind of practical righteousness the Bible is speaking of when it refers to believers who ultimately are still sinners, who ultimately are still among those of whom it must be said that strictly before the law of God, there is none righteous, no, not one. Yet those believers are referred to like David speaks of himself here, and like Zacharias and Elizabeth were referred to as righteous before God. And again, not talking about justifying righteousness, the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, they had that too. But the next phrase modifies and explains the first. This is talking about practical, personal righteousness. Righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. So it was with David. When it came to his justification before God, that righteousness that we must have to be accepted by God's law in his sight, he was nothing but a sinner, even at his best. And no righteousness could prevail to give him a right standing before God's law and to reconcile him to God, but a perfect, spotless, imputed righteousness which is only to be found in Christ. But when it came to his sanctification... David manifested a practical righteousness, a purposeful cleaving to his God until his dying day. The testimony of his conscience and of his pen was that he was sincere in his devotion to God. The Puritans understood this qualified use of the term righteousness. And this is what they called gospel holiness or sometimes they called it evangelical perfection. Evangelical perfection, says the Puritan Thomas Gooch, is the sincere desire and earnest endeavor to obey with godly sorrow and grief of heart for our failings and trusting upon Christ for acceptance of our imperfect performances. This evangelical perfection is in no way the basis of our justification. The law of God requires sinless perfection. And, the only righteous, and only the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone can justify us and make us right before God. But this evangelical perfection, as they described it, is the outworking of the, the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian in sanctification, which always accompanies and is the fruit of justification. The two come together. And it's the testimony here of a heart and life that is truly devoted to God and to his Savior. So we've considered the claim David makes. He testifies to his integrity. And more than that, he proclaims 
that God had rewarded him and had delivered him from his enemies because of his integrity, which leads us to verses 25 to 27. We have reference, secondly, to the ways of God David knows. And now he's going to underscore that this is the manner of God's providence in his dealings, not just with him, but with mankind in general. Verse 25. With the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. With a blameless man, you will show yourself blameless. With the pure, you will show yourself pure. With the devious, you will show yourself shrewd. For you will save the humble people, but will bring down the haughty looks. And here David underscores a principle of God's moral government in the world. He asserts that just as God has dealt with him, God deals with all men according to the manner in which they live and the principles upon which they act. To be merciful... To the merciful, God is merciful. To the blameless or the upright, God is upright. With the pure, he is pure. With the devious, he will show himself shrewd. Or in the language of other texts, he catches the wise in their own craftiness and he causes men to fall themselves into the pit which they have dug for others. He delivers the humble, it says, but the arrogant and the haughty he brings down. Such is the manner of God's providence in his dealings with men, which was so abundantly demonstrated in David's life. As William Taylor comments, the general principle is this, that God is on the side of the right, and that if men conscientiously adhere to that which they know to be their duty, he will in the long run bring forth their righteousness as the light and their judgment as the noonday. So, We have the claim David makes, and we have the ways of God that David knows. I've taken the time now to explain this passage and the distinctions that we have to make here in order to understand it properly, because that will help you to understand your Bible better, but also because there are some important lessons to be drawn from this, and I have two that I want to open up in the time remaining. The first one is this. Let us be reminded from this passage that it is possible... For a Christian to have a testimony of conscious integrity before God. You can have such a testimony and you ought to have, you should have such a testimony. Now listen to this quote from Kevin DeYoung. This is from his excellent little book, The Whole in Our Holiness. It's actually been the book of the month quite some time ago. We actually require our students to read this book in the Doctrine of Salvation class. It's on the whole subject of holiness in the life of a Christian, how the, the, the Christian who's justified is also being sanctified, and, and how that this is a truth that seems to be missing in a lot of the teaching, even in some of the rebirth of reform teaching today, the importance of this. And he gives the example of the kind of things it's common to hear Christians say sometimes. Uh, to say this in an effort to acknowledge our remaining sinfulness, to exalt the gospel of God's grace, Uh, common to hear people say something like this. I am a spiritual failure. But praise God, Jesus came to save spiritual failures like me. I cannot obey God for one nanosecond. I never truly love God with all my heart or my neighbor as myself. 
Even my righteous deeds are filthy rags. If you could see my heart, you'd see that my sins are as bad as anyone else's or worse. But the good news is God has saved me because of Christ's death and resurrection. I am his adopted child, forgiven and clean. Nothing I ever do can make God love me any more or any less than he already loves me in Christ. Even though I continue to sin, I can never disappoint my heavenly father. For he looks at me and sees the righteousness of his beloved son. What unspeakable good news. Now what do you think about that? Someone says, well, what's wrong with that? Well, if we take it as a general statement of confessing sin, expressing trust in Christ and his righteousness alone uh, for justification before God, everything there, it's, it's all wonderful and it's true, but that's not the full picture. If we probe deeper, there are aspects of those statements that are not very careful and can even be theologically confusing and dangerous and short-circuit a passionate pursuit of holiness in our lives. We have to establish and we need to know and to believe that holiness is possible for the Christian. It's both necessary and expected of the Christian. And it's possible, not perfectly, but really. We who are justified by faith in Christ are also indwelled by the Holy Spirit. We're united to Christ. And being indwelled by the Spirit, we can be godly and holy in our lives. We can live, a lot, live lives of integrity. It's not self-righteous to have, and if you have, to give testimony to your own integrity. As David does, you ought to have that kind of testimony, and you ought to be able to honestly give it. Now the question is, can you? And don't cop out and avoid that question with a kind of false humility. Oh well, pastor, you know how it is. We're all sinners. Like the bumper sticker says, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. Well, yes, Christians aren't perfect, but it's wrong to say that they're just forgiven. They're also changed by the grace of God. And they have the Spirit of God dwelling in them. And sinners saved by God's grace can so live as to be able to say with David, for I have kept the ways of the Lord. And I have not wickedly departed from my God. As for his statutes, I have not departed from them. I was also blameless before him, and I have kept myself from my iniquity. Or in the language of the Apostle Paul, for my boasting is this, the testimony of my conscience, that I have conducted myself in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity. Can you say that? Obviously, Paul couldn't say that before he became a Christian, but he could say that as a Christian at that moment in his life. Now, again, my question is, can you say that? Now, remember, the issue is not sinless perfection. But can you say that you are remaining faithful to God through all the ups and downs of your present circumstances? Can you say that though you have not kept the ways of God perfectly this is your sincere desire this is your serious endeavor can you say that you're keeping yourself from your iniquity that you're not giving yourself up to the constant pull of those iniquities that you find yourself most tempted to though at times you fall prey to sin you don't lie in it you fight against it you're seeking to put it to death to keep yourself from it and when you do sin you're quick to repent and confess your sin to keep short sin accounts with God and with men also. 
when you're aware of having sinned against another person in a way that they're aware of or has harmed them. You're quick to seek to make that right. In the language of Paul, Acts 24, 16, exercising yourself always to have a conscience void of offense toward God and toward man. And can you say that though not flawlessly, you remain committed to the various duties, callings, responsibilities that God has given to you in your life? Can you say that? It's possible. Even with remaining sin, to be able to say that. And you ought to be able to say that. Remember what the Puritans called evangelical perfection. It is, quoting Googe, the sincere desire and earnest endeavor to obey all that you know to be the will of God with godly sorrow and grief of heart for your failings, confessing them to God and looking to Christ for pardon and acceptance. Does that describe the present pattern of your life? That's Christian holiness. That's sanctification. And this is the way we are to live. And by God's grace can live as God's people. In fact, it's the gospel alone. It's only the gospel that enables us to live this kind of life. It's only by being in union with Christ. This is not legalism. I'm not talking about the legalistic effort to make ourselves right with God by our good works. No, there's a huge difference between that and what I'm talking about this morning and what the scriptures are talking about when they speak of Christian holiness. The believer does not work in order to be reconciled to God. He works from being reconciled to God through Christ alone. The believer doesn't work for life. He works from life already freely received by grace. He doesn't strive to live well in order to be united to Christ, but because he is united to Christ, and not by his own strength, but by the promised strength that Christ supplies. He doesn't work from a fearful dread of condemnation, hoping somehow by his efforts to earn salvation. No, he works from a heart of gratitude for having been freed from condemnation by the blood of Christ, and from love and devotion to the Savior who loved him and gave himself for him. This is gospel holiness. Until you're in Christ, you can never live this way. But in Christ, by faith, united to him, you can live this way. And you should live this way. He saved us in order to enable us to live this way. And he promises to enable you and to help you to do so by his spirit who is given to us. And then secondly, the second lesson from this passage. We're reminded from this passage that if believers conscientiously seek to be faithful to their devotion to God, it is his manner in his providence to bless them and to reward them for it. And often to do so in this life, as well as the next. Remember, there's a principle illustrated by God's dealings with David. David, in all his troubles and all of his conflicts with his enemies, he was delivered, verse 19, because the Lord delighted in me. He was rewarded according to his righteousness, verse 20 and verse 24. And the same principle 
illustrated in God's dealings with David is then stated by David in verses 25 to 27. Remember, David underscores a principle of God's moral government in the world. Namely, God deals with men according to the manner in which they live and the principles upon which they act. Now, does that mean that those who trust him and serve him and live a life of integrity before him will never have any sicknesses or diseases and that everything will always be smooth sailing in their lives? No, the book of Job has exploded that myth once and for all. And David didn't have an easy life. He had many trials, many sorrows, many disappointments, many distresses, but through it all, God was with him, and God helped him. He, he didn't keep him from afflictions, but he sustained him in the midst of his afflictions, and ultimately, God vindicated his servant and blessed him in a host of ways because he was faithful in his devotion to him. This was true in God's dealings with David. And it continues to be true today. And my dear friends, that ought to be an added motive to every Christian to live a life of godly integrity. An added motive to exercise yourself, to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward man. It's true that even the best that we can do is tainted with remaining corruption and weakness. It has no real merit with regard to our legal standing before God when measured against the perfect standard of God's law. It's true that we only stand accepted in God's presence by grace alone on the basis of the work of another, even the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all true, wonderfully true, but it is just as true that the Bible speaks of God rewarding his people for their faith and devotion to him and in accordance with their own practical righteousness. Speaking of the word and commandments of God, the psalmist writes in Psalm 19:11, Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. Proverbs 13:13, 13, 13, He who despises the word will be destroyed, but he who fears the commandment will be rewarded. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 4:8, Godliness is profitable. For all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. Not just that which is to come. Godliness brings benefit also in the life that now is. So the Bible speaks very often of this matter of reward. And again, we have to be careful. We have to distinguish between God's relationship to us in terms of the perfection required in the law for justification and his relationship to us now that we are accepted by him and now that we are in union with Jesus Christ we can never be justified by the works of the law Christ is our righteousness by which we are justified and if you're not a believer this morning my friend you can try to do good and try to be a good kind righteous person but it's unacceptable to God it's all an abomination because you and your person are not right with God you're acting in self-autonomy as an enemy of God. And until you repent of that, and until you run to Jesus Christ as nothing but a sinner, and you put your trust in him alone, and you submit to him as your Lord and Savior, and you embrace him as, re as the only one who can reconcile you to God, until then all your works are an abomination to God. 
He accepts none of them. But now, for the Christian, now that our persons are accepted by God, God is pleased with our efforts to serve him and to do righteousness, even though they're imperfect. And he often blesses us in many ways because of them. It's very important we understand this. If you're, if you're a believer, now that we are in Christ, God is our Father. We've been taken out of the courtroom setting, as it were, into the living room setting now. And in that setting, our Father is pleased with our efforts to obey Him and to glorify Him, imperfect and weak as they may be. And it's His manner in His kindness and mercy to His children to reward them. Now, our confession of faith says this so well in the chapter on good works. And if you want to see this developed in more detail, read the chapter on good works. Uh, the chapter that I wrote in the book on the confession that Rob Ventura edited on this chapter, the chapter on good works. But let me just quote from, from the confession here. We cannot by our best works merit pardon of sin <clears throat> or eternal life at the hand of God. Yet notwithstanding the person of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works are also accepted in him. Not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight, but that he looking upon them in his Son is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accomplished with many weaknesses and imperfections. Very important that we understand this as we live the life of faith. Listen to A.W. Tozer. From a failure to properly understand God comes a world of unhappiness among good Christians, even today. The Christian life is thought to be a glum, unrelieved, cross-carrying under the eye of a stern father who expects much and excuses nothing. He is austere, peevish, highly temperamental, and extremely hard to please. And brothers and sisters, that kind of view of God will not produce holiness in our lives. It either leads to formality or to despair. Listen to another commenting on this. <clears throat> Why do we imagine God to be so unmoved by our heartfelt attempts at obedience? He is, after all, our Heavenly Father. What sort of father looks at his daughter's homemade birthday card and complains that the color scheme is all wrong? What kind of mother says to her son after he gladly cleaned the garage? Well, wouldn't that be wonderful if that actually happened? <laughs> What kind, of, what kind of mother says to her son after he gladly cleaned the garage but put the paint cans on the wrong shelf, this is worthless in my sight? What sort of parent rolls his eyes when his child falls off the bike on the first try? There is no righteousness that makes us right with God except for the righteousness of Christ. But for those who have been made right with God by grace alone, through faith alone, and therefore have been adopted into God's family, many of our righteous deeds are not only not filthy rags in God's sight, they are exceedingly sweet, precious, and pleasing to Him. How important it is for us to understand this. How important 
To have this confidence that as we seek to live for Christ, as we seek to live lives of godly integrity, the confidence that God is pleased with us as his children, as we seek to do so. David's faithfulness to God in the end brought great reward, and this is set forth as a motive for us, isn't it? Is it ever right to be motivated by the hope of reward? Yes, because the Bible often presses upon us this very motive. It does so in text after text. Indeed, this is one aspect of what faith believes and lays hold of and is inspired by. Hebrews eleven six. But without faith, it is impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now, the flip side of this principle concerning God's general manner and his providence is true as well. How can you expect God's blessing upon your life if you're living a careless life as a Christian? You're not living a life of integrity before him. If you're not a Christian, you've never been converted. If you profess to be a Christian, but you're not seriously endeavoring and seriously concerned about walking before him in godliness, before others, with integrity. And brothers and sisters, let me not only apply this individually. We need to apply this corporately to us as a church. Do we desire to see God bless our church? Do we desire to see our church prosper, to be marked by the felt presence of God's Spirit in our midst? Do we desire to see sinners saved, to see our children saved, and to see preachers trained and raised up and missionaries sent out, to see churches planted, to see great things accomplished through this church for the cause of Christ and His kingdom? Do we really desire to have the smile and the blessing of God upon us as a congregation? Well, then if we do, we must be a people who, like David, are marked by conscious integrity. We must be a people who are exercising ourselves. That, that's a word that involves effort, doesn't it? Exercising ourselves. To have always, at all times, a conscience void of offense toward God and man. That doesn't mean you never sin, but that means you don't let it lie on your conscience. You confess it. You repent of it. If you sin against a brother or sister in Christ, you go to them. You ask their forgiveness. And you seek reconciliation. Maintaining, exercising yourself to have a conscience void of offense toward God and man. That's how we receive more grace into our lives. Listen, God gives grace to the humble, but he stiff arms the proud. And the humble man is a man who's not, who's not always saying, I don't sin, or he's ignoring his sins. He's dealing with his sins. He humbles himself in confessing them, repenting of them, laying hold afresh upon Christ, doing so in his relationships to his fellow men. And he walks that way, and he lives that way. And as he does so, God is pouring more and more grace into that man's life. And he's growing in grace. In godliness, in Christ's likeness. The best sermons ever preached in the history of the church could be preached in our services. We can come up with 
all kinds of new ideas and start all kinds of new ministries. We can have a giant budget to fund just about anything any church could ever want to do. But if a significant portion of the congregation is grieving the Holy Spirit by hypocrisy and duplicity, pretending to worship God when there's a controversy with God in your life, and your conscience is defiled, then we have no right to expect God to bless anything we do. We could even pray more. We can have more prayer meetings. We can set aside days of fasting and prayer, and we can plead with God to bless us, but to no avail. As the Scripture says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated you from God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. But on the positive side of that principle, brothers and sisters, the psalmist writes in Psalm 66, 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, if I cherish it, if I hold on to it, cling to it and cherish it, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. But then he immediately follows that statement with the testimony that I have not cherished iniquity in my heart. And because this is so, because he's seeking to walk before God with integrity, he immediately follows that by saying this. He says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me, but certainly God has heard me. He has attended the vo to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God who has not turned away my prayer, nor his mercy from me. Would we have God attend to the voice of our prayers? Would we have power with God in prayer? Would we enjoy great measures of God's blessing and smile upon us as a church? Well, if so, let us be a people who in dependence upon God's grace are seriously and faithfully seeking to live lives of godly integrity before him. I don't know about you, brothers and sisters, but I don't want to be, I don't want to be an Achan in the camp who grieves the Spirit among God's people and causes the blessing of God to be withdrawn from us. I trust that none of us do. Well, may God help us to walk each day, keeping short sin accounts with God and man, pursuing holiness and Christ-likeness in our lives, doing so from a posture of confident faith in the gospel and in God's love for us in Jesus Christ. And may he grant that when we come to the end of our lives, that every one of us will be able to say with David, I have kept the ways of the Lord, and I have not wickedly departed from him. May that be the case with all of us. May that be the prayer of all of us, that God would preserve us and keep us in the way of faith and devotion to him all the way to the end. God hears such prayers from his people. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We pray that it would accomplish your purposes in all of us for the honor and the glory of your name. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, 
as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.